Okay, as you're turning in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11, we're going to do a little review. We have some people that we picked up, thank God, uh, new visitors and families joined the church since last, uh, we started this last August, I guess. Um, but we talked about in Exodus 1, 2, and 3, the early days of Moses' life, and there's some extra biblical sources, historical sources, uh, Josephus, for example, that give us a little more insight into what Moses' life was like during those first 40 years. Uh, we see a picture here of like Moses leading the, the Egyptian army. What, what had happened when he was in his mid-30s is the, the Cushites or the Ethiopians, what is now Ethiopians, they had rebelled against the people of Egypt. They had their own king, and they were fighting down in the southern border of Egypt. And Egypt's army, they didn't have enough army down there, and they got whipped. And so... Notice gets back to uh, downtown Egypt down there, and they were like, man, we got to do something. And they said, well, we need a bigger army. So they said, how about we list, enlist Moses over here, the adopted grandson of Pharaoh, and let him lead the army down there, and he'll recruit some of his blood, the Hebrew people, to join in with our Egyptian forces as foot soldiers, and we'll go down there, and we'll take him. So Moses, grand general it is, he takes him down. He's, he's whipping the Ethiopians, the Cushites, they were known then, and he comes to their city walls, now ready to conquer them, and while he's there at the city walls, the king of Ethiopia is up there, the king of Cushites, and he has this daughter named Tharbas, who's a princess, and Moses sees her, she sees Moses, they kind of take a liking to each other, and as a political uh, truce, they agree to have those two get married. So, and then the nations will get along. And so Moses goes in and consummates the marriage, uh, agrees, and later kind of the plan is she's going to move and become the queen of Egypt down there with him. Well, Moses gets back to Egypt, and they're like, man, we don't want, we don't want an Egyptian guy to be our pharaoh someday. It's one thing for him to lead our armies, but you're not Egyptian enough for us. And so feeling rejected, Moses goes out, we read this in the Bible, he goes out and he sees a Hebrew and an Egyptian out there, and he says, well, I'll side with the Hebrews. They are my people, they're my blood. And so he sees them fighting, and he defends the Hebrew to the point that he kills the Egyptian who's fighting with that Hebrew. And the Egyptians get word of it and say, well, we're going to run you out of town. And the Hebrews, he's thinking, Moses thinking the Hebrew people have my back, and they're like, no, no, you're too Egyptian for us. And so he leaves town. The marriage to the Cushite wife is over. He's sitting out in the middle of the desert, 40 years old, and he thinks his life is over. And man, that's easy to do when you're 40 and things aren't going according to your plan. You can be 35, 40, 45, even 50, and you're like, man, my life is just not lining up the way I thought, and you think it's over. Now, the people 60, 65 in here, you're saying to them, son, you're just getting started. And that's what God's saying to Moses out in the desert. He says, I've still got some molding to do for you. Yeah, you're divorced. Yeah, you, uh, you murdered a guy. But I can still use you. Even though Moses' dreams are gone, listen, God's plan for Moses were bigger than Moses' plans for Moses. And I'm just here to tell every one of you in this room, listen, God's plans for your life are bigger than your plans for your life. Don't ever forget that. I mean, just to put it in perspective, for the first three or 4,000 years of written human history, at the time of Moses, the Pharaohs were the most powerful men the world had ever known, right? Somebody in this room tell me, one Pharaoh's name and a major accomplishment of his reign. Just give me the name of one Pharaoh and a major accomplishment of his reign. Somebody give me one. Somebody. You've heard of Ramses, but his major accomplishment was he, he messed up with Moses, really. I mean, like, what? give me a name and a major accomplishment of him. This, this is my point. If you go around the world today, 99.9999% of the people you talk to can't name you one Pharaoh and one thing they accomplished, most powerful man in the world. But you go around and you say the name of Moses, and almost everybody knows who you're talking about. 
Why? Because God's plans for Moses' life were bigger than Moses' plans for Moses' life. Because when you're in the hands of God, it's not worldly power that makes a difference. For that matter, let me just ask you this. Give me one major accomplishment of John Tyler, James K. Polk, Franklin Pierce, Chester Arthur, or William Taft. Has anybody got one? I got an American history major in the room. Can you give me one? I'm not, I'm not making a point. Like, I'd really like to know one thing one of these presidents did. Somebody want to give me one? Raise your hand if you know one for sure. Okay, yeah. I don't know. All right, so I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he started it. I don't know. Anybody else got one that they're sure they did? Here, here's what I want you to just remember as election season is coming up on us. In 100 years, nobody's going to know anything Donald Trump did. People are like, oh, it's the end of the world if Trump gets elected. You know what? Eight years ago, they said it's in the world if Barack Obama got elected. We're still here. In 100 years, nobody's going to remember anything Barack Obama did. He'll just be a trivia quiz on Jeopardy, okay? That's it. They're not going to matter and end things. Unless you're in the hand of God doing exactly what God would have you do, nobody's going to remember you in 100 years, let alone 3,400 years from now. Look at another question for you. What do these names have in common? And if you talk to somebody in the early service, don't shout the answer. George Clinton, Elbridge Gary, Daniel Tompkins, Richard Johnson, George Dallas, William King, and Hannibal Hamlin. Does anybody know what all those names have in common? No, they didn't sign the Declaration of Independence. Good guess. It is American history. Some of them weren't born until the Declaration of Independence was. Anybody know who these are? All of these were vice presidents of the United States. Okay, George Clinton was Thomas Jefferson's vice president. Hannibal Hamlin was Abraham Lincoln's vice president during the Civil War. And none of you knew who he was. You thought he was Anthony Hopkins in one of those scary movies. Okay? This why I, I just want you to remember, I mean, when these guys were in their prime, they were like, will you vote for me? Will you donate money to my campaign? I just want to be this. And one day they woke up, they woke up, and their mama was so proud. I'm the second most powerful man in the world. And 100 years later in the United States, nobody's heard of one of them. But if you're in the hands of God, you will accomplish things that people will talk about for all eternity. That's because God's plans are bigger than your plans for your own life. Do you hear what I'm saying, church? Don't forget that. We so often want to have a life of significance. But the way we have a life of significance is we place our hands in God's hands. Okay? So that... This is what I want you to understand. If you want to have a life of significance, if you want to have um, impact in this world and any type of leadership whatsoever, this is something you just need to understand right off the bat. Here's the thing. God's ways are bigger than our, way, our ways, but they're also harder. Uh, hey, Tim, my slides aren't coming up back here on the back screen. Can you fix that for me, please? It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, whoop, there it is. There we go. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say might be, could be, should be. Will be. If you want to make a significant difference in this world, this is what's going to come with it. It's persecution. And this is what, listen, prosperity gospel preachers don't get. They don't understand this. Is if you are leading the way God would have you lead, really leading, you will be persecuted. I don't care if you're the fifth grade safety patrol leader, the captain of your cheerleaders. If, if you are leading in any way, shape, or form, you're going to be attacked. And if you're following Jesus, you're going to be persecuted for sure. It's a promise of God. And here's the reality of it. If you are leading in religious circles, 
The number one place of attack will not come from the people of the world. It will be from other people who are so-called followers of Christ. I can just promise you that. And I would say for most of you in this room, for those of you who have been hurt deeply, in large part, it has come at the hands of someone who said they believed in Jesus. The people who knifed you during a campaign when you were going for a job. Those are the ones that hurt. So mark it down. The people who, cheer, who should cheer you on the most will be the people who cut you the most deeply. It's going to happen. We see it here in Moses' life. Tim, it's still not up there. I don't know if we have to do something with the remote control. Um, I'll go, and now this isn't working. Okay, so here's what happens in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. It's not there, and it's out of here, all right? Let's try this again. Go to the next Numbers 4. I've got it in my Bible. I can just go straight here. Let's try to get that fixed if we can. Numbers 11, verse 4, okay? It says here, it says, Now, the mixed multitude... Who were among them. The word here for mixed multitude is the word for rabble. Okay, have you ever heard the term rabble rousers before? This is what it's talking about here. It's a small percentage of people, but they lead other people to be dissatisfied. It's the people a lot of times that come and uh, that say, well, we've been talking about this, or they were saying this, or we've heard these people. Like who? Like, who's they? That's what I always have. When somebody comes to me, well, they were saying, well, who's they? Give me names. Okay? And that's what he has here. The rabble rousers among them had a strong craving. And this is what a small percentage of the group always does. They're not getting what they want. They're craving something they can't have under your leadership. So they get everybody else whipped up about it. And what it is, is like. A lot of times what you find is two or three people are going around complaining to everybody, but it feels like a million because they're going around to everybody, right? And uh, so I just want to say, man, we had a 99.5% vote, so it's not like we've got, like, disunity here with, within our church. This is more of a preventative sermon. I don't have an agenda on this. But I, I just want to say generally this is a leadership principle is that when everything starts going bad and anything, you always have one or two people that aren't getting what they crave, and they start influencing other people to complain about leadership. And this is what they're saying. They're only getting meat one day a week, and now they wish they had it every day. All right? Now, how many of you grew up like me? And it, uh, younger people don't get this because meat's so much cheaper than it used to be. But when I was a kid, I remember it was a big deal. We got meat really one day a week. And what day of the week was that? Were you like me? What one day of the week were you going to get meat if you got meat? Hey, there you go. That's uh, all the older poor people in the room, okay? It's just like Sunday was meat day. We were going to have some fried chicken. I remember when the KFC opened in Montgomery, West Virginia, we would get a bucket of fried Kentucky Fried Chicken every week, and man, we were big time, all right? So we had that original recipes, all right? So we would get together, and we'd have that meat one day a week, and that, but here's what they're saying, man, that's not enough. That's not enough. And the rabble-rousers say this, we remember the fish we ate six months ago when we were in Egypt, and it cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. That sounds like Italian food to me. I like it. Sounds good. And I can see what they're looking at, but here's where they've lost perspective in just a few short months. They, they like, oh, it used to be so good back then. That's what rebel rousers do. They said, but now our strength is dried up. We just can't go on like this. We just meet on Sundays. And there's nothing at all to look at but this manna to look at. Remember what manna means? It means what is this? Well, what is it? It's like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bedillium. All right, but here's the thing is, we don't know what coriander is or bedillium, so that doesn't help us any. All right, it's like a grain. And this is what they did. The people went around and they gathered it and they ground it in hand mills and beat it in mortars and they boiled it in pots and made cakes out of it. And the taste of it was like the take taste of cakes baked with oil. We're here for oils, olive oil. Doesn't sound so bad. 
okay? But it, they just had the same thing every day. I remember when I was young, like, what are we having for dinner tonight? Well, we're having beans with bacon. Oh, okay. Well, what are we having tomorrow night? Bacon with beans. I mean, it's just, you had to get creative, right? Find a new way to package it. And that's what they're doing with manna. Well, every day, it's manna de jour, you know? I mean, it's just, it's a fancy way. It's the same thing for every day. Every day. The dew fell in the camp, and the manna fell with it. And so Moses, here is everybody whining and complaining. Everyone just sitting out on their porch at night. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. He's like, man, don't y'all realize how much better you had than what you used to? And Moses was displeased. Now, who do you think Moses is displeased at? You would think he'd be displeased at the people, the complainers, the rabble-rousers. But that's not what Moses does. He's like us. Watch what he does. Moses says to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? that you laid the burden of all his people on me. Did I conceive all these people? Are they my kids? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land I swore to give their fathers? Where am I going to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. My burden is too heavy for me. In other words, I just want you to hear what he's saying. God, I didn't ask for this job. I was content being a goat herder with my wife and two sons living a simple life out in the desert. I could have just died of a heart attack like every other old man. But no, I'm out here with two million complaining people in the desert. I didn't want this job in the first place. But he's finally getting to where God wants him. Now here's what I want you to see. Look at this sentence. I am not able to to lead this nation on my own. It's too heavy. And that is exactly where God wants him. God will knock you to your knees. That's when you become a good leader. It's when you realize you're not good enough to be a good leader. Without God's help, you'll never have success. And so he's like, man, Moses, now I got you where I want you. But Moses is so miserable at rock bottom. Watch what he says. He says, God, if you're going to treat me like this, then kill me at once. Just let me die. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. I'm tired of being a failure. Have you ever been like that? I, just personally, just a little self-disclosure here. Like, I've never been suicidal in that, like, I wanted to kill myself. But there have been plenty nights in bed. I mean, I hope this doesn't shock you. There have been plenty of nights in my life, even while I've been here at Canova, where I said, God, I'm so dissatisfied with my life right now that if my heart would stop beating tonight, I'd actually be thankful for that. Have you ever been there? I mean, if you're in a strange situation and you don't see a way out, you're just like, man, God, just please. Be better off for everybody if you just took me out. And man, I'm just telling you, when you feel that way, that's the devil talking. That's not coming from the Holy Spirit. But even pastors are susceptible to it. I heard just a few weeks ago, a pastor in a large church, late 30s, had everything going for him. They found him in his office dead. Another pastor over in Ashland just a few years ago. Young guy, had the world. Shot himself right in his office. You see, when God gets you to the point that you think you can't go forward anymore, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to fall on your face before Jesus and say, Jesus, you've got to fix this. I can't do it on my own. Or you'll continue to wear yourself out to utter depression trying to fix it by yourself. Just call on the Lord. See, Moses realizes this. He says, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and it be enough? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered for them and that'll be enough for these rabble-rousers? And the answer to that is going to be what? No. There is nothing Moses is ever going to do leading two million people where all two million people vote unanimously to reelect him. 
It's not going to happen. This is the trial of leadership. If you're truly leading, there are going to be people who want to go back to the way they used to do it. They're going to want the status quo, and you're going to be attacked, and it's not going to go your way, and the only way you're going to survive it is if you find your identity not in their opinion of you, but in God and God's alone. Do you hear that? I got an answer to one person, and it is God Almighty. It's not any of you. And so God hears all this complaining. He says, all right, they want bird? I'll give them some bird. And the wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and he let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side, a day's journey on the other side. That means you got 24 to 30 miles wide of just bird falling everywhere. So much so that it was about two cubits, that's this high above the ground. That's a lot of dead bird laying on the ground, right? And dead bird can't stay out that long. You better collect it, and you better clean it, and you better eat it soon if you don't have refrigeration, right? Chicken can't lay out on the shelf very long. And so all the people rose that day and all night and the next day, and they gathered the quail. Well, I got news for you. If that bird's been dead 24 hours, you're in trouble. But they wanted it, and they gathered at least 10 homers. Now, this is kind of like a phrase of speech. It's equivalent to a ton of weight. So it's like, man, we, we had a ton of bird left over, okay? And they spread themselves out. Woo, look at all this bird. We're big time. But while the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck them down with a very great plague. Oh, you really wanted that chicken? Now you're puking it up. Man, thank God that he doesn't always give us what we ask for. And just watch it when you beg and beg and beg and beg for God to give you something. Man, I've seen people do it. Dear God, give me a boyfriend. Dear God, give me a husband. Dear God, give me a husband. Dear God, give me a husband. Then God gives you that husband. Dear God, take me away. <laughs> Isn't that what we do? Man, so how do you respond when you're being attacked? How do we respond? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. When you're trying to lead, trying to live a godly life, this is what you do. Blessed are those. Just remember this. You're blessed when you're persecuted for doing the right thing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the perspective Jesus would have you have. Watch. He's reminding you, your reward is not on this side of the pearly gates. When you're getting hammered by everybody around you, God is putting money in your retirement program. Your greatest critic is doing you a favor because every time they criticize you, they're just building an addition onto your mansion over the hilltop. And that's where you can say, hey, bless you. Blessed are you when others revalue you and they persecute you and they other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Just thank God for it. That retirement program is just getting bigger and bigger. So what do I do? And Jesus says this way. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to respond. Pray for those who persecute you. Love them. Be thankful God put them in your life. It's going to humble you. Say it again this way. My youth leader gave me this verse when I was a teenager. It meant a lot for me. And I'll tell you why. This, is, this next verse I'm getting ready to show you. I remember when I was a senior in high school, I... I was a nice person. Most people liked me. I was one of the more popular people in my class. But about, man, when I got on fire for the Lord my senior year, the fall of senior year, like all of a sudden they quit inviting me to go to parties. Because when I would go and my buddies there claimed to be followers of Christ, when they'd start drinking or start wanting to go mess around with this girl, I'm like, dude, we don't need to be doing that. You don't need to be, come on, man, we don't do that stuff. It's bad witness. So you know what they started doing? It's this verse. Blessed are you when people hate you. I'm not saying they hated me, but they did do this. When they exclude you. I quit getting the calls. All of a sudden, my buddies were going out in the woods for the bonfire or whatever, but they weren't calling me anymore. And he said, blessed you. Blessed are you when you get left out. And listen, this is when you're left out from your own youth group kids. 
When they revile you, they spurn your name, they make fun of you on account of you just wanting to follow or lead like Jesus. Paul got it. This is what Paul said. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities. Here's why. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He says it this way. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's writing this when he's in prison. He's able to see the big picture. What he's able to see is, man, what God has done is he's taken a guy with a hard heart and soft skin, and he's made me now with thick skin but a soft heart. That's a true leader. Is I love you people, but my skin's thick enough, you're not going to be able to hurt me. So now that Moses gets this concept by the end of chapter 11, that takes us to a different level of persecution in chapter 12. And this one's going to hurt, hit where it hurts badly. Here's at the root of it. Moses and Aaron, Miriam and Aaron are going to speak against the brother. Now here's why they do it in verse 2. Because they are saying, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord hears them saying this. What were they saying? Miriam's like, who, where does Moses get off thinking he's the lead guy around here? I mean, Moses, don't you remember? I was the one. You wouldn't even be alive if I didn't put you out in that little basket for Pharaoh's daughter to find you. And Aaron's like, man, I was your big brother. I'm the one speaking for you all the time. Maybe I got words I want to say on my own behalf. Maybe I know what God wants to say. They want to be the leader. They want to at least share that. They want to be the man. That's the heart of it. But because they feel that way, look at how they stick it to Moses here, okay? They spoke against Moses. Why? Because of the Cushite woman he had married for he had married a Cushite woman. They're at Thanksgiving dinner, and they brought up his divorce from 45 years ago. Ouch. Now, if I'd been Moses, and somebody's bringing up my divorce from a decade ago, I'd be, uh-uh-uh, no, you didn't. I can't believe you just brought that up. Like, really? That's what you're going to say to me? You're going to bring up my relationship with that girl from before I met Dee? That's what you're going to throw at me? Man, this is great timing with Thanksgiving dinner coming up with your families, right? Just a little note, rule of the day at Thanksgiving dinner, don't bring up somebody's ex at Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving, all right? Can you all agree that's probably a good idea, right? Don't bring up that stuff. It cuts deep. This is your family. You don't need to be hurting people. Leave that in the past. But this was the root. They wanted to tear Moses down to bring themselves up to his level. But God heard it. Now, what's Moses' reaction? Well, the chapter before, a few months before, he'd get all torn up, but not now. He had learned, man, I'm dependent on God and I'm answerable to God. Watch Moses' reaction. It says, now the man Moses was very meek more than all people who were on the face of the earth. My friends, how did he get that way? By dealing with the constant complaints of the rabble-rousers. Listen, the people who are constantly giving you strokes, all they, did is, all they do is feed your ego. When you're in leadership, thank God for the people who complain because they're the ones who keep your feet on the ground. So you thank God for it. You're keeping me humble, Lord. And so this is how God responds. It says, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. Okay? Now, can you imagine this? It's equivalent to Jack Victory, please come to the office. Jack Victory, please come to the office. I mean, whenever you heard that in school, Jack, what, what did everybody else in class do? Oh, you guys went to the same high school I did, right? Oh, 
Like, you're like, what did I do? For me, it was like I knew I'd done five bad things. I just didn't know which of the five things they were calling me to the office for. Okay? And so all three of them come out. Like, oh, God wants a conversation. So here are these three people in their 80s, and they're just standing there like little kids in the principal's office. And the Lord comes down in a pillar of the cloud, and he stands at the entrance of the tent, and he says, Aaron and Miriam, stand right here before me. And I can just see Moses going, uh-oh, this is going to be bad. And God said, hear my words. Now, whenever your mama says that to you or your daddy, you know it's coming, right? Hear my words. Ooh, that's like them saying, Stephen Roderick Willis, I know I'm in trouble. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, and I'll speak to him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You're not the pastor of this congregation. I can't believe you'd attack his character. It's one thing to say, Moses, you might be able to organize things better, but to go after him as a person, to bring up something he did 40 years ago, you crossed the line. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And then God departed. Now, I want you to see the contrast between the two. Over here, you have Moses who is saying he's the reluctant leader. God, I never asked for this. I'm not trying to rule with an iron fist. I don't have to be heard. I don't have to be the man. I want other people to help me lead this nation. I'm trying to delegate like my father-in-law Jethro told me to do. I'm not trying to be a control freak here. I don't have to be the guy all the time. But over here, you got Aaron and Miriam saying, we want to be the leaders. We want to be heard. I want to be in a position of leadership. And my friends, listen, when you want that power, when you need that power, that's the time when you need to be reminded you don't need it. You don't want it. And by God, I hope nobody ever gives it to you. Because deep down, the only way you really have leadership is if it is granted to you. People have to come to you and ask you to serve in that. You don't politic for it. People recognize those abilities in you. They ask you to serve in certain positions. And if you ever feel slighted, like, why didn't they ask me? I should be the man. I'm good enough. That's why you're not ready to lead. Your your skin is too thin and your heart is too hard. And it's only when God softens your heart and thickens your skin that you will be ready to lead. I see Kenny over here. He runs for politics. I'm not telling you to vote for him, but I can just tell you this. Kenny, you would say it. Since you've been in it, my guess is the people that hurt you the most are the people you thought were your allies. When you hear somebody that said they'd support you is sticking you behind your back. And if you don't have thick skin, you can't go to sleep at night. Thank God that he gave you Tanya to thicken up your skin for 40 years (laughs) so you can handle that abuse. (laughs) You're there to keep him humble, she says. There you go. God's anointed Holy Spirit is Tanya, okay? So when the cloud removed, and this is why I think Miriam was the one that started this. She went to her little brother Aaron and said, man, you and I should play a bigger role around here. Now she's a leper. She's getting sores all over her skin. And Aaron turned to Miriam, and behold, she's leprous. And he looks at her sister, and he, he looks at his sister, and he's like, man, we've messed up. Now watch what happens here. Aaron looks to his little brother. Now this is humble when you're doing it to your younger sibling because Aaron's the firstborn. But he's humbling himself with his little brother. And he says, hey, boss, Oh, my Lord, that's the way he's saying, hey, boss. See how his position has changed? Watch. What got Aaron to humble himself? God had to strike 
his favorite sibling. Listen to what I'm about to say. Don't miss this. Not a, not a mommy or daddy, grandma, grandpa in the room. Listen to what I'm about to say. Don't put God in a position to where he has to hurt someone you love to humble you and get your attention. I'm going to say this again because I'm just telling you right now, I think there's a strong possibility that God has given me this word for this congregation today because this is your last shot before he goes to plan B on your family. Don't put God in a position to where he has to hurt someone in your family to get you to humble yourself and make things right. Because he will do it. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He still works the same ways today. Now Aaron gets it, but it took his sister getting leprosy. It might take somebody getting cancer. It may cost somebody being in a car wreck before somebody finally says, I'm sorry for my pride. And he says to Moses, man, Moses, don't, don't punish us because we have done foolishness and sin. We should, we should have never risen up against you. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. Let, let her not, I don't want her to die. I don't want her flesh to be half eaten away. Like when a baby comes out of her mother's womb, this is bad. So how does Moses respond? I'll ask you, how would you respond? If someone had just attacked you and said you weren't qualified to lead the way you were leading. But because he has a soft heart and thick skin, watch how Moses responds. He cries to the Lord. Oh God, please heal her. And then I love the way Hebrews written, the ESV does a great job here communicating the begging nature of this comment. Oh God, please heal her. Please. You ever pray like that? God, please reach out to my child. Please heal my husband. Please heal my coworker. They've learned what they needed to learn from this situation. Now, please bail them out. That's the kind of leader that Moses was, and that's the kind of people we need to be, church family, toward one another. And it's for this, in the next, I got 12 minutes left with you. I want to break down something that I put together called 10 Commandments of a Fair Fight. I share this with couples when I do counseling. It's for people that work together, any conflict situation, I want to share it with you. Here are the 10 rules for a fair fight. You follow these and you'll probably be okay. I have a biblical verses for all of them. I don't have time to give you a verse on every one, but I'm going to be going over these again tonight in detail and really training you all how to help other people fight fair and help have you to have biblical arguments, okay, the biblical way. Rule number one, commandment number one, this is the one that's most important. Whenever your things are tense, call time out and cool down. I see this all the time. Listen, when things, Dee and I, it took us probably 15 years in our marriage to get to we finally figured this out, is give each other the right to call time out. To where one of us can say, you know what? If we argue about this anymore right now, it's just gonna, it's gonna be destructive. I've talked about all I can talk about it right now. I'm just getting frustrated. I'm gonna say something I'm gonna sh- shouldn't say. I'm gonna do something I shouldn't do. This is gonna, we just need to stop. And the thing is, is when you're arguing with somebody and they ask for a timeout, what do you need to do? Give it to them. And some of the ugliest situations I've seen in my office are where an emotional argument became a physical argument. And usually somebody called for a timeout and the other one went back off. If somebody asks for a timeout, give it to them. Cool it down. Number two, as part of that cool down, you need to do this. You need to pick a time and place when you're going to resolve whatever this issue is. Some of you are professional, sweep it under the ruggers, okay? You're really good. And you just keep putting stuff under, under, under to your relationship rug is this high with junk underneath. 
Usually there's at least one of these in a family, and when conflict gets the worst, both of you do it, and the relationship just turns sour. I'm going to give you a timeout, but when can we come back and talk about this later? You need an hour? No. I'll still be mad. Two hours? No. Can we talk about this tomorrow? Okay. And listen, when it comes to this, setting that time, don't be passive. And usually, like, you get the next day, hey, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Let's just forget about it. If you didn't resolve whatever the issue is, it's going to come back at you and bite you later. Did you hear what I'm saying? Say, no, we need to talk about why this was such a problem. Let's do it now. Okay? And then when you do that, when you start to have that conversation, rule number three, pray together beforehand that you will both be willing to forgive and that there will be healing. Both. So Kenny sits down with Tanya, and Tanya's, pray, Tanya's prayer should not be, dear God, please help Kenny to straighten himself out as a part of this relationship. Okay? It's got to be, dear God, may we both be forgiving and loving throughout this entire conversation. And as a result of this congregation, this conversation we're about to have, may there be healing and peace in our home. May there be healing and peace in our workplace. Number four, take turns listening without interrupting. This is the number one thing. I see a parent and her daughter come in the room. Here comes mom. She's mad at her little girl. She comes in. I say, okay, what's going on? Mom starts going. About 15 seconds in it, the daughter's like, huh, no, no. And then she interrupts her. And then I'm like, well, honey, what's your, what, what's your take on this? I, and she starts five seconds into it. The mother says, that's not true. I'm not that way. Take turns listening, and the key word here is listening, not just letting them do their spiel. Listen to what they have to say. Number five, take responsibility. This is one of the hardest ones for me to communicate to people. Take responsibility for your own emotions. People, like, hate me for telling them this point because they want to blame the world for how they feel. Take responsibility for your own emotions. What do I mean by that? No one can make you feel anything. If I come in and I walk through the door and D says, boy, you look awful today, and I choose to let that hurt me, that is me giving her emotional authority over my emotions. Do you see? It's not her. She didn't make me mad. I made myself mad because I gave her authority over my emotions. I gave that to her. It's not her words that made me mad. What do I mean by that? Like, if I'm just walking down the street and somebody sees me across the street that I don't know, and they say, hey, dude, you look awful today. I might look back at them and say, dude, you're not looking so good yourself. But I promise you, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. I'm not going to go look in the mirror. Do I not look good today? That stranger doesn't think I look good today. I'm not going to give them emotional control over me. Their words don't have power over me. So if D says something that hurts my feelings, it hurts my feelings because I let it hurt my feelings. It's not her fault. Maybe she shouldn't have said it the way she said it, but I'm the one that made me mad. So the way I need to communicate it to her is, D, when this happens, I usually feel blank. Now, this was one of our biggest arguments for years. I'd like to say it's been perfectly solved. It hasn't. I'm supposed to warn you for this, but it's about the socks. I know she's not going to care, okay? So, like, our biggest thing that we would fight about is I would leave my dirt. I'd come in at night, and I'd sit down on the bed, and I'd take my socks off. It's dark. I don't want to make noise in the room. And I'd leave my dirty, stinky socks right beside the bed. And so I wake up the next morning. I've got to get to work, right? Who has time to put socks away? I mean, it, that takes five seconds I don't have. Okay? <laughs> Who has time to put the socks away? They'll get put away sometime within the week. Okay? So I get up, and Dee's like, you make me so angry when you don't put your socks away. I don't make her angry. Those socks don't make her angry. But the way she needs to communicate to me is, Steve, 
When you leave your socks out by the bed, and you know I like a clean bedroom, I usually feel disrespected. I usually feel unloved. And that's where I have to pause and say, when I see those socks laying there after day three, you know what? Like, I usually don't even notice the socks. That's the problem. Like, they just disappear in the room. They blend in. They're camo. But if I notice the socks, the Holy Spirit has to trigger me and say, you know what? Your life, wife will feel more loved if you just put those socks away. It's not that hard. So just do it. Even today, I got like 10 pieces of clothing laying around our bedroom. I knew I was preaching this. I didn't want to be a hypocrite. I told her, I'll clean up my stuff this afternoon. All right? Because I know when it's a mess, how do you feel, D? What's the word? Disrespected. So that's what D says. She says to me nicely with a smile, when you leave your junk all over the floor, I feel disrespected. I don't want my wife to feel that way. I want there to be peace in my home. And then while she's telling me this, she doesn't need to say words like always and never. You never put your socks away. That's not true. I did it once three months ago. You always leave your socks out. You never put your cereal bowl in the sink. You need to put, well, you never put water in it and it gets all crusty. Anybody else have these arguments? <laughs> then this is what you do. Now it's my turn to talk. I repeat what I just heard before I respond to their words. I repeat. And Dee said, okay, now what did you just hear me say? I heard you say that you hate me. I didn't say I hate you. I love you. No, you just, there's no, I can't make you happy, D. I, I just, that's what I hear you saying. I can never make you happy. That's not what I said. Well, what did you say? I just want you to put your socks away. What did I say? You said you're not happy with me. No. All I want you, and then I'll repeat back to her. All you want me to do is put away my socks. That's it. Okay. You want me to put away your socks. And then this is what we have to do. I can't say, yeah, but you don't do this for me. Or I'm not happy because you don't do this. Or the reason I leave my socks out is because you treat me this way. No. Keep the discussion about whatever that single subject is. You're not going to solve 20 problems in one argument. Just solve one problem in that one argument. Everybody get it? Number nine, leave the past out of it. Once you have resolved an issue, if you bring it up again later, you've broken commandment number nine. Don't bring up the past relationship. Don't bring up a past mistake. If it was forgiven and resolved and they're not doing it anymore, you don't bring it up again. And then finally, number 10, leave the kids out of it. They don't need to see your dirty laundry. It's none of their business. Leave them out. And I don't care what you say. I've talked to enough kids, teenagers. You can tell a 12-year-old all you want. This has nothing to do with you. They don't get it. They're going to take it personally. Now, after you've gone through all 10 and it's still not working, this is what I need you to do. Watch. If there's no resolution, you just can't communicate. And sometimes this happens in every relationship. Dee and I have had them. We just get to the point we can't talk about it anymore. If there's no resolution, seek immediate mediation. And what do I mean by that? Just have someone else sit in the room with you while you try to debate. You'll stay calmer with another person in the room, usually. So what you do is just say, hey, will you just sit in the room and just help mediate, make sure we're following these Ten Commandments of a fair fight? Now, it's not arbitration. What do I mean by that? I hate it when couples come to me and say, I want to do this. My wife wants to do that. You're the pastor. Tell us what we need to do. I don't like that responsibility. Let me tell you what my job is. My job is to sit down and help you communicate. Did you hear what she just said? Repeat back to her what she just said. Nope, that's not what she said. Say again what you want him to hear. Now repeat back to her what she said. Just don't yell. It's just... It's my job to mediate. Now, here's what we're going to do tonight, and I hope you can come. I'm going to do like Moses was told to do. I'm going to train and equip everybody that's going to be there tonight to be level one mediators. 
I would love it if in within your context that you go to a friend in your small group and you say, you know what, we're just arguing over this and we're having a hard time. You're not bringing in an ally who will take your side. You're just bringing in someone who will help mediate a situation that is just really tense. And we're going to train people to do that. But here's the heart of how we do it and why we do it. The command is don't be quarrelsome. The concept is if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's our call as a Christian. That's our call within every marriage. Some people say, I just want to know if it's God's will for us to work this out. Listen, it is always God's will for you to work it out in as much as it's dependent on you. Sometimes, though, you might be in a relationship with somebody or work with somebody who they just aren't willing to change, and you can't fix that. You understand what I'm saying, church? They're just continually abusive in several ways. As far as it depends on you, that's the concept. But the character behind this peacemaking is this. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace. Jesus is a peacemaker. So that's what all of us have been called to do. He has made us both one. He's the God of unity. Whenever you see disunity in a family, in a church, you can know it's not Jesus making that happen. Man, sometimes I'll hear people say, well, this is the way God was glorified. He made this happen and these two bad things and it must have been God's will. No, it wasn't. God might have fixed your mess up, but that didn't mean it was his will. God's will is us to be unified. He is the one, Jesus is the one that breaks down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And if Jesus is a wall breaker, a buster downer, then we need to be wall breakers and buster downers. Do you see that? Because it's our job to reflect the character of Christ in our church, in our workplace, in our families, before our children, in our schools, and throughout the world. Let us teach one another to have soft hearts. Let us exhort one another to have thicker skin. Let us encourage one another to be peacemakers in all that we do. Because Jesus Christ died for all, us, all of us on the cross to make peace between us and God and so that we can have peace with one another. Amen?